Good morning and welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church today to our 1030 service. We're excited about all that God is doing here at Desert Hills. We had a tremendous uh, block party at Sundance Park yesterday. Our outreach teams had the opportunity to, to connect with multiple families and multiple groups. Got some more people signed up for the epic Easter egg hunt on the 16th. And then uh, some people planning on coming to our sunrise services on the 17th, Easter Sunday morning at 6 at Verado, 7 at Sundance, and then the three different services. If you have not already filled out a card as to how you can uh, say yes as far as being a part of uh, the, the giving of the uh, stuff for the Easter eggs or uh, serving on Easter Sunday or maybe helping during the epic Easter egg hunt. All of these things are done ultimately so that we can have an opportunity to share the message of the gospel uh, with those that are going to participate in these events. And we're excited about that opportunity and excited to serve our community and excited that you're here today. I understand some of you are here today because a friend invited you to be their plus one here today for plus one Sunday. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for choosing to worship with us at Desert Hills. And we're excited about you being here and excited about all that God is doing at Desert Hills. If you have your Bibles this morning, your iPads, your phones, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We continue in this series called Betrayed. And as we take this journey that leads ultimately to Jesus being on the cross, which we'll talk about next week, uh, we'll find ourselves at another meal. Last week, we find ourse found ourselves at a meal in the house of a man by the name of Simon the leper. Lazarus had joined in the meal, and the Jews at that point set in motion with Lazarus the plot to kill and murder Jesus Christ. Now today, we're going to look at the Passover meal that happened in Luke chapter 22. A couple of reminders. If uh, you have small children here this morning and they start to get a little fussy, if you can help me by, by uh, kind of exiting the service, we have a room uh, in the activity center that's set up for that. And if uh, you maybe uh, need to go out and come back in, go out and come back in. If you can kind of make sure you, you help yourself in the activity center, you'll enjoy the service a whole lot better there. What's going to happen if you have small children in here this morning and they start to get fussy, uh, I'm going to make sure they have a whole bottle of high fructose corn syrup, all right? And so uh, when you leave, I'm going to sneak it in their car carrier. And so somewhere along the line between now and tonight, they're going to be up all night. And you're going to know that that's the pastor that did that. So if you can help me with that. And then also, ladies, if you have not yet already signed up for the ladies' tea that's going to happen here the last uh, week in April, you need to plan on being a part of that. My wife and the ladies have a sign-up table in the lobby. There's lemons on it. I, I think the theme is when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful brunch time. I think she's got a waffle bar planned. And it's just going to be a wonderful time. Speakers and, and the time together is just going to be outstanding. You won't want to miss that. Luke chapter 22 this morning, a message entitled, A Betrayal of Values. A Betrayal of of values. Now, Tennessee Williams' short story, Something by Tolstoy, tells the story of a man by the name of Jacob Brodsky. He was a shy Russian Jew who ran his father's bookshop. Jacob's dreams seemed complete when he married his childhood sweetheart, Lila, a beautiful, exuberant French girl. The life of a bookshop proprietor suited him swimmingly, but his adventurous wife, not as much. 
An agent for a vaudeville touring company, kind of like our modern-day Broadway show touring company, if you will, heard Lila sing and talked her into touring Europe with their show. In the process of explaining to Jacob that she had to seize this opportunity and leave, she also left a chasm-sized hole in his heart. Before she left, Jacob gave her a key to the bookshop and said, you had better keep this key because you'll want it someday. Your love is not much less than mine, and you won't be able to get away from it. You'll come back sometime, and I'll be waiting, to which then he handed her the key. Lila went on the road, and Jacob went back to his bookshop. To deaden the pain, he turned to his books as someone would turn to drugs and alcohol. Weeks turned into years. When 15 of them had passed, the bell above the bookshop's front door rang and signaled the arrival of a customer, and it was Lila. The bookshop owner rose to greet her, but to her astonishment, her abandoned husband didn't even recognize her and simply spoke to her like she was any other customer. Do you want a book? Stunned and trying to maintain her composure, she raised a glove hand to her throat and stammered, no, that is, I wanted a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. Regaining some poise, she continued, let me tell you the story. Perhaps you have read it, and perhaps you can give me the name of it. She then told him of a boy and a girl who were constant companions since childhood. As teenagers, they fell in love. They eventually married and lived over a bookshop. She told him their whole story, the vaudeville company's offer, the husband's broken-hearted gift of a key, the return of a wife who was never able to part with that key, and how after 15 years, she finally came to her senses and came home. Then, with a desperate plea, she said, You remember it. You must remember it. The story of Lila and Jacob. With a vacant, faraway look, he merely said, there's something familiar about the story. I think I've read it somewhere. It seems to me it's something by Tolstoy. Only the heartbreaking metallic echo of the key dropping to the hard floor interrupted her horrified silence. Lila, having let go of the key as well as her hope, fled the bookshop in tears, and Jacob returned to his books. Each of the disciples of Jesus had attached themselves to him with their own dreams and their own desires. They all had the reasons for following Jesus, and not all of those reasons were pure. And as we look at the text this morning, we see that the values of why Jesus had come and the values of why the disciples had chosen to follow him, they weren't always aligned. Now, how could you spend three and a half years with Jesus and not really understand who Jesus was all and what Jesus was all about? I mean, these men walked with Jesus. I mean, they went from Capernaum to Bethany to Jerusalem and, and to all of these other places around the Sea of Galilee. They walked with Jesus. They heard every one of his sermons. They saw him heal people that were lame. They saw him heal people that were blind. They saw him heal people that didn't have limbs and those limbs come fully back. They saw him cleanse the leper. They saw him even raise the dead. They saw him cure the demonics. 
They saw him go toe-to-toe with the religious elite of his day, but they had missed completely why Jesus had come. Like the Tennessee Williams story, we all miss the purpose of why we do the things that we do and who and what we should really value. Now, the occasion of this gathering in Luke 22 was the Jewish feast of Passover. It was a time to remember when God delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was a time of celebration as each family reflected on their ancestors, putting the blood on the lentil and on the doorposts, and as they did, they were spared from God's judgment. It was a feast that brought Jews together to Jerusalem once a year from all over the world to celebrate what God had done for them in the past. It was a meal of lamb, of bitter herbs, of unleavened bread, and grape juice. The lamb would come to symbolize the once-for-all Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, who would give himself to spare his people from judgment, just as the Passover lambs in Egypt spared the people then from judgment. The herbs would be used as an object lesson to remember the bitter bondage that the Israelis faced in Egypt and here in our text to symbolize the bitter bondage of self and betraying values. The unleavened bread would come to symbolize the haste that the Jews left in fleeing Egypt. They didn't even have time to allow the bread to rise. And this unleavened bread would come to symbolize the sinless body of Jesus Christ that was pierced for each and every one of us. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took the cup in his hand and said this, this cup is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. It was one of the supreme moments of salvation history. In that single sentence, Jesus declared that his soon-to-be shed blood would supersede all of the blood sacrifices that had ever been given in all history. And before all the elements were partaken of, Jesus says this in verse 16, For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled all in the kingdom of God. The next time Jesus partakes of these elements will be at a time known as the marriage supper of the Lamb mentioned in the book of Revelation, a time in the future where all Christians are going to gather together in white robes, their robes being white because they have identified with Christ, they have been made white, they have been made clean, they have been made pure because they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, and will all celebrate and remember Christ. While this meal of remembrance was winding down and the cup of blessings still in hand, we find in this passage in Luke 22, three acts of betraying values. The first of which we see is a betrayal of allegiances. If you look with me at Luke chapter 22, notice what it says in verse 21. It says, Jesus speaking, but the, behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth, as it were determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Now, if you can imagine with me, what a heartbreaking scene. Judas, by every indication, was the cream of the crop. He was the entrusted steward of the group. 
He was the who's who of the disciples. And no one, as you read in the other Gospels, even suspected Judas of being the one that was going to betray, even while he was dipping the bread in the sop and Jesus called him out for it. No one even suspected Judas of being the betrayer. But Judas had chosen an allegiance that did not indicate he valued Jesus or Jesus' ministry. In fact, he prophesied what is said in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Judas's allegiance turned from Jesus to the priest, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, and ultimately, as we talked about last week, it turned to money. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver or $6,000 in our modern-day economy. He sold Jesus out for a sum. He gave allegiance to those other than Christ. He gained the world, and in the process, he lost his own soul. Matthew goes on to describe what later happens to Judas. It says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, Then Judas, which betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now, Judas did not repent himself where he realized Jesus' messiahship and he came to Jesus needing salvation. Judas felt bad about what he did. And the Bible goes on to say that he does this and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to it. In other words, it doesn't matter to us. Everything's already set in motion. You did what you did. See thou to it. Live with the consequences of your actions. And the Bible says he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went and hanged himself. Now, in no way am I advocating suicide today, but the fact of the matter is every one of us is going to die someday. Every one of us. The Bible says in this, this light, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, as it is appointed once to die, and after this, the judgment. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. Every one of us is going to die someday. And we may have all the appearances of being a follower of Jesus, Judas did. I mean, he had every appearance. If there was somebody that you would look at and say, man, he's a follower of Jesus Christ, you'd look at Judas and he'd say, you'd say he checks all of the boxes. But here's the thing. He was a betrayer. We can have all of the lingo. We can dress in all the right clothes. We can participate in all the right activities. We can live a solid life. But what makes the difference is not what you do for Jesus, but what makes a difference is what you have done with what Jesus has done for you. You see, Jesus lived his life 33 years on planet Earth for one mission, to seek and to save that which was lost. He lived his life as a perfect Passover lamb without blemish. Not one time did he sin. Not one time did he think an evil thought. Not one time did he say an unkind word. Not one time did he go against the will of his father. He did not break the law to fulfill the law. Not no way in no shape or form. He fulfilled the law to its fullest. Not one time did he do anything that we would classify as sin. 
And he went to the cross willingly. The Bible says, He that knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Acts says it this way, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Judas betrayed allegiances. We see also there was a betrayal of truth. As the meal continues on, as you look at verse 24, it says, And there was strife among them. Who? The disciples. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? Now, I studied that out a little further, and what it means is this. When crowds would come to see Jesus, they were trying to view each other as more important and less important. In other words, uh, Jesus they knew was the most popular, but, but they were arguing who was the second most popular, who was the second most valuable person in the bunch of the 12, 12 disciples. And so they were going back and forth. No, it's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. No, I am more handsome than you. No, no, I'm smarter than you. No, 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 I know more than you. No, 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 I've seen and spent more time with Jesus in prayer. And they were arguing which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. Greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, let him be as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Now, somewhere along the line, the disciples missed it. Every last one of them. They forgot the lesson that Christ had taught in Mark when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, came to Jesus and they asked for Jesus to give them their heart's desire. And they, they said, I want to sit on your right hand and I want to sit on your left hand in the kingdom. And then Jesus gave them a lesson on priorities. And here's what he said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 44. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So during this meal, Jesus had just explained his death and departure. The disciples didn't grasp the magnitude of his words, and then they began to argue amongst themselves who is the greatest, literally bantering back and forth as to who was the most important of them amongst the crowds that came to Jesus. And you know what? Indirectly, we all do the same thing. When we fight for our own way. I've been married 27 years. And you know what? In that 27 years, I've never been wrong. <laughs> My wife has got the L. Liar! <laughs> no, we're all that way. We get into arguments, well, well, no, I can't be possibly wrong. No, no, my way is the better way. No, 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 if we do it your way, it'll be bad. How do you know? We're all that way. And that's exactly what the disciples were like. You know, it doesn't surprise me when contention arises in the home. It doesn't surprise me when contention arises in our government. Isn't that what the government's all about? <laughs> It doesn't surprise me when contention arises in the workplace or even in the church. 
You see, we all have within our hearts a degree of narcissistic clamor that desires to get our own way at any cost and to be seen as the most important in every area of life. According to the chronology of these events, just before Jesus had this encounter with them arguing as to who was the greatest, he gave them one of his most important lessons of servant leadership. In fact, Jesus himself got a towel and he girded himself with the towel and he got down on a knee and he got a bowl, a water basin, and he began to call the disciples forward and as he did, he began to wash their feet. Now, Jesus was a master. He was a rabbi. Jesus had a following. He was an important teacher. But yet here, Jesus as this master, here as this rabbi, here as this leader that had scores of people following him, he shows them you're not above washing feet. And so he begins to wash their feet. And here's what John tells us. It says in John chapter 13, he rises from supper, lays aside his garments, and took a towel, and girdeth himself, and poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And now they're arguing as to who among them is the greatest. You see, this was a betrayal of the truths that Jesus had tried to instill within them. And by not following the truth, there ultimately was strife. And you know, we see the same thing today when we as believers know the truth, but instead of following through on the truth that we know, we do what we want, and as a result, we have problems. Here's how Paul explained this to the church at Ephesus. He wanted them to kind of get the idea of what I'm trying to say about this betrayal of truths. And he says this to the Ephesians. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I am imploring you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. In essence, he's saying, you're a Christian. Walk worthy of your Christianity. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. Remember everything that you've been taught. You're a Christian. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer as well. And then he says this, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And then he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Keep dying to your desires and your flesh and your way and allow the Spirit to control you so that there can be unity. But here in the upper room, at the Last Supper, as it's been known, there was a betrayal of truths. And then lastly, we see there was a betrayal of a relationship. If you look with me at verse 31, it says, Jesus calling out Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And when all would be said and done, not only Peter, but every one of the 12, with the exception of John the Beloved, would leave Jesus in his hour of need. They wanted advancement in his kingdom without bearing a cross. 
They wanted greatness without hardship. They wanted promotion without difficulty. And I find this to be the case in our modern-day Christianity as well. We all want the blessings of the Christian life. We all want families that are whole. We all want lives full of peace. We all want relationships that are meaningful. We all want jobs and finances that sustain us. We all want joy in our lives. But sometimes we don't understand that the chief need that we all have is Jesus. And we think we need and want and got to have all of the blessings. And we don't realize that what we need most is Jesus. And when we don't get what we want, when we want it, we want to throw our Jesus out because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. Well, let me help you understand something. God is not your little private cosmic genie trying to give you whatever you want. God is God. And the fact of the matter is, in this life, we will all have tribulation, but we should understand, we can be of good cheer. Why? Because he has overcome the world. And one of the wonderful things we know as Christians is as we're in problems, in the midst of them, as we are dealing with trials, Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. He's with us. The chiefest blessing when we're going through difficult times is the presence of Jesus. You know, I talk with people at times and they'll tell me about their problems and I'll say, well, let me ask you this as we've heard a little bit about what's going on. Let me ask you this. How is your relationship with God? And they mean, what do you mean? My, like, do I read the Bible? Do I pray? Do I go to church? Well, I do go to church. I say, well, well, are you allowing God to speak to you through his word? Are you reading the Bible on a regular basis, reading some devotional book? And they'll say, no, I don't think it's necessary. Huh? Are you giving your burdens to God? Have you developed a habit when you have a burden, when you have a heartache, when you are, are dealing with pain in your life? Do you understand that we don't have to worry about anything, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we can give all a request unto God, knowing that the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, will keep or guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you take your burden and give it to him? Do you continue to unload it on him? No. I tried that once, it didn't work. And then when I, as a pastor, encourage them to start there, they think, okay, he doesn't wanna to listen to me, he doesn't understand what I'm going through. He doesn't understand how people operate in our world. He's probably never dealt with problems. You see, sometimes it's right in front of us but we just don't want to apply it. We just don't want to understand it. Paul, realizing that the chief need of man was Jesus, as he was preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill, carries on this conversation in Acts chapter 17. And here's what he says. He says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth life to all and breath to all things. If God can give life and breath to everything, let me ask you, don't you think he can handle your problems? 
And hath made of one blood all nations of all men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He knows everything about us. It goes on to say this, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. Do you realize that every one of the circumstances that God allows in your life are ultimately to bring you to him? And then it goes on to say this. It says, for in him, in him, Jesus, we live and move and have our being. Jesus is the chief need that we all have. Now, the disciples would come to know what it would mean to relate with Christ, and most of them would face a martyr's death. Paul would be beheaded by Nero. Peter would be crucified upside down because he chose not to be crucified right side up as Jesus was. Andrew was said to be crucified. Thomas was uh, speared through by four soldiers. Philip was cruelly put to death. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was martyred for the gospel. James, the son of Zelotes, was clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot uh, uh, was killed after he refused uh, to worship the sun god. Matthias was burned to death. John, the apostle, the beloved, they tried to kill him by putting him in a vat of oil and when he did not die, they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. The disciples that betrayed the relationship with Jesus here in Luke 22 and immediately thereafter would come to prove themselves as true followers of Jesus Christ. Each one of them being martyred for their faith and their commitment. Now here's what Mark says of this type of commitment. Whosoever shall come after me, the Bible says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall find it. And each one of the apostles, they lost their life for the gospels and they found it. Now, let me ask you this morning, are you betraying your allegiance with Jesus? Judas proved that he wasn't indeed a disciple. His actions spoke louder than his words. He sold out for 30 pieces of silver. He gained what he wanted in this world, but in the process, he lost his own soul, literally. Or maybe you are betraying the truth. You know what you're supposed to know, but you aren't necessarily living it out. You read your Bible or have read your Bible or have heard sermons or are hearing sermons, and you understand that God's voice is clear. You know what God is telling you, but you've been unwilling to yield to what God is telling you. Are you betraying the truth? James says it this way, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Or maybe you are betraying your relationship. You see, each one of us called as believers are literally sons and daughters of God. Think about that. Children of God, a part of God's family. Why is it that often we do not live like we are? Why is it that we so easily succumb to sin and discouragement? Do we really realize 
what we have and more importantly, who we have in relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't betray your relationship with Jesus. Let me say this, he will never betray you. In fact, here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter eight, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Question mark. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus will never betray you. So, my bit of advice in closing is this. If you are not saved this morning, trust Jesus as the payment of your sins and the Lord of your life. And secondly, my bit of advice in closing is this. If you are a Christian, put God's truth to the test. When I first started going to church and the preacher got up and preached and he talked about praying and giving your burdens to God and then you'd know the peace of God, I wasn't skeptical about those things. I believed him. And so I did. When the preacher talked about when your uh, uh, God is your refuge and your strength and your ever-present help in the time of trouble, Psalm 46, I believed him. And so I'd pray the prayer of Psalm 46, God, you've said in your word that you are my refuge, you are my strength, you're my hiding place. God, I need you to be my refuge right now. I need a place of rest. There's, there's commotion, there's chaos all around me. God, I need you as my refuge. And I found that he was. But you know what? Oftentimes we don't want to be simple that way. I gotta figure out my problems. My problems are not as simple as that. God doesn't understand. Oh yes, he understands. Put God to the test and live the Christian life, or should I say allow Christ to live his life through you.